the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We put a lot of weight in American society on the idea of self-reliance and so-called independent hard work. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's literally an absurd notion, but so much of our expectations about how people succeed or fail in America turns around that phrase. Today, we're going to talk with author Alyssa Quart about the myth of self-reliance, why it persists, and the damage it does to all of us. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm always glad that you've decided to join us. There's a phrase that is pretty common in our culture that has always irked me a little bit. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Not only is it literally absurd, but I think it connects to a set of absurd expectations that we also have of each other. No matter wherever or whenever you've heard it, I can almost guarantee you have heard that phrase. But is this really the best way for a society to live? The idea that to ask for or need help somehow marks weakness, or is unnecessary. The myth that those who have so much more than we do got it all on their own, just by working hard, not relying on handouts or help. There's a lot that gets wrapped up in this expectation in America. It's part of the reason that people resent each other and resent those who are kind of beneath them economically, trying to get ahead, feeds into this idea that those people are quote-unquote taking from us. It also feeds the idea that those ahead of us are somehow pure, somehow free of entanglement and connection and help the things that absolutely propel people forward. So why does this idea persist in America? Why can't we see life and particularly economic life as more cooperative, collaborative, the idea that if all of us work together, maybe all of us might get ahead. Further ahead, even. 
That's where we want to begin the conversation today. Can anyone on the planet really say that they succeeded alone? Don't we all have at least some guiding figure in our life that helped us get to this point? And don't we all rely, at least somewhat, on the community around us to succeed? And if those things are true, why do we keep coming back to this idea of extreme self-reliance, lionizing the idea that there are people who got where they got all by themselves? To help us explore these questions and more, I'm joined today by a guest who has been thinking a lot about individualism and the myth of self-reliance. Alyssa Quart is the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and she's the author of a new book called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. Alyssa, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, it's so great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Yeah. So uh, what caused you to take such a close look at this idea of individualism and, quote, pulling oneself up by their bootstraps. As I said, we've all heard that phrase before. What uh, what interests you about taking a deeper dive into it? Well, you know, I run this nonprofit, right, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project that I created with Barbara Ehrenreich, the great, late great author, mm-hmm. muckraker, labor writer. And we saw when we were early on, when we were publishing people, some of our writers are working poor, working class. Uh, almost all of the reporting that we edit and publish and, and and support is around questions of poverty and inequality. It was just the way that people reacted to these pieces, these these films and these photographs of, of people struggling in America. They'd say, why is this person, you know, why do they own their house? You know, they're spoiled. Why did they go to college? Why did they send their kids to college? Why didn't they go to college? Why did they not get married? Why did they get married to the wrong guy? You know, why did they go into medical debt? Like there was always a reason for why somebody was down a peg, right? And there was this need to blame on the part of people who were on, you know, in a safer place economically and sometimes even emotionally. Like, oh, you know, I have mine and I'm going to point the finger at all these other people and think that they've done something, almost something morally morally wrong to, to put themselves in this situation. So that I was like, what is going on? This is such, such venom, you know, um, and such a lack of, uh, I don't know, empathy, charity, lots of different things, right? And so I, I wanted to see what the myth behind it, like the folk psychology behind this way of, of thinking is, because I felt like it was beyond just like people wanting to sneer. It, it, it came from a deeper part of this country. Um, so I want to talk about uh, a survey uh, of eligible voters between 2016 and 2018 and what it told us about how people think of Donald Trump, who I think is an important figure in this conversation. Uh, it found that as many as half of the respondents did not know that Donald Trump was born into a wealthy family. And when Donald Trump told voters he was a self-made billionaire, apparently lots of people believed him. And that story really resonated uh, with the people who supported him. Um, I want to talk about how 
wealth has become this this kind of uh, detached um, uh, w- this detached object of worship, I guess, in 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 our country that that people believe uh, all the time that those who are wealthy are somehow pure, even when they demonstrate to us that they're not. That uh, they have gotten where they got because uh, somebody worked hard. They worked hard. They didn't rely on handouts or help. It seems to me that that's a really important part of this dynamic. That uh, it, it makes middle class people, of course, aspire to be wealthy and work hard, quote unquote, to to get there. It also makes those in the middle disdain those behind them because, as you point out, it's very easy to just kind of say, well, those people haven't worked as hard as I am. But it is wealth and the idea of obtaining wealth that drives that dynamic, and it drives it with figures like Donald Trump. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I've been taking away from the indictment, um, as like so many people stuck to the uh, radio listening to all the details was that yeah the stormy daniels the charities you know these were cons these were you know uh he had charities that were corrupt and he had paid uh stormy daniels for her services uh through campaign funds right but the bigger con beneath it was that he made millions of dollars by his own lights Mm. and it was almost like all the other cons flowed from that con you know, that he didn't inherit money from his father, Fred Trump, that, I mean, he got like a million dollar startup, you know, uh, pocket money (laughs) from Fred Trump when he was a young man, right? (laughs) Um, He he had uh, endless tax write-offs and he cheated on his taxes and, um, and, you know, he lost a lot of money, right? A lot of the money that he inherited. So even if, you know, even by the lights of him having been born into this role and uh, he didn't, he, he made, he he uh, sabotaged it, right? He didn't. He wasn't a self-made billionaire, billionaire by any stretch. But all these people believed it, and I think, you know, what this book taught me was we need to, in order to prevent more Trumps and more false self-made men that then pull other cons on the American people, we need to start puncturing their self-made lies when they start. We can't just let them. Uh, keep presenting themselves. He'd say things like, I have good genes, like use a kind of the racehorse theory of uh, slightly like eugenics, honestly, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to, to explain why he, he deserved all the, all the uh, breaks he'd gotten or the stature he had attained. Right. And, but I mean, I think you really need a concerted effort to lay out the story and what a lie it is, a self-made story earlier on in some of these public figures lives because that's the way we're going to get some traction before we have to deal with, you know, four more years of somebody who creates just endless, you know, circus and corruption and, you know, ill, Ill feeling and bad political moves, et cetera. So, um, you know, I have some thoughts about how we do that. I mean, one of the, what the study showed me was that people were actually kind of reactive. 10% of the Republicans that they, these researchers told, this was in a battleground state in the Midwest, they told them 
that he wasn't self-made. They explained how he wasn't. These 10% said they had their uh, feelings about him had changed. Hmm. So that's pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, like, this is something that we need to get out of uh, MSNBC and into, you know, a broader audience, these kind of revelations of some of these folks. I mean, and but not just Trump, like Elon Musk, right? Sure. A lot of the people who are creating damage have used or exploiting Americans' fantasy of being self-made to get themselves into positions that they have no right having in this country. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Alyssa Quart. Uh, she's the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of a new book titled Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. We're talking about this idea of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, this myth that drives so much of American ambition and American culture, the idea that those who have so much somehow earned it all on their own without any reliance on other people without any help. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think is the cause of success in your own life? How much of it do you attribute to you alone versus other people around you, your family, your friends, your community? Do you believe that individualism is a good thing, that American reliance on and worship of, really, individualism? Or should we be focusing more on community and collectivism? How do you see individualism and collectivism kind of showing up in your life? And do you prefer one approach over the other? Call and tell us why. Where did you get the idea that individualism or collectivism is the right way to do things. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Alyssa, before we get to our listeners, I want to talk about where this idea comes from. Where do we, uh, where do we learn this idea that individualism is uh, the way to do things? Why is it such a strong feature of the American experience? Well, it starts with uh, people like Emerson and Thoreau and other major figures and Horatio Alger, who was a novelist um, in, the early, uh, in the early 20th and late 19th century. And it goes all the way through Herbert Hoover and Ronald Reagan and Clinton and a whole host of other people. And they helped us create this story that through political speeches, through books. And uh, I really want to try to demystify that for people. And there is, a, there is a, both a political and a racial context to all of those things and all of those stories. Either intentionally in some cases, or uh, coincidentally, given our history. Uh, you, you say the name Ronald Reagan, for instance, who I think uh, for people of, of my generation, you know, born in the 70s and growing up in the 80s and, and 90s, uh, uh, who defines this, this kind of late 20th century idea of individualism and creates an entire movement around it, there is a very strong racial component to 
what he's saying, uh, sometimes overt and sometimes uh, very subliminal. Um, uh, Some of the other figures uh, you mentioned also kind of either sidle up to or or wrap their their arms around uh, these kinds of distinctions that have existed uh, in our society. Talk a little about how how race aggravates uh, some of what we we see from this idea of individualism. Yeah, I mean, it starts with the coining of the self-made man, mm-hmm. which is in the early 1830s, and it's 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 coined by a, a, a Kentucky representative that this is a slave state, um, and they obviously had a as you said it's. It's like coincidental, not coincidental, uh, vested interest in defining, you know, entrepreneurs of the time, you know, plantation owners and people who own steamboats and all the rest as self-made, not resting on the labor of enslaved people, right? So this is like really inscribed in, in early on in our history. And then, you know, when you mentioned Reagan, I mean, Reagan was obsessed with, you know, welfare welfare queens, right? Or that was, you know, he had this whole idea of this, the people hiding money, welfare money under their mattress mm-hmm. and scam artists. And there was just one woman, you know, he called her the woman in Chicago who had, who had done this. He was a scam artist, but, uh, you know, that wasn't majority of people receiving welfare, but he used that as a way to, you know, impugn an entire uh, group of people who were, who needed uh, social support. And yes, they were often people of color. And it, it's, it's great. You picked up on that because that's, that's part of this. It's like, you know, who has the ability to be an individual list? I mean, you know, it's often white men, honestly, mm-hmm. historically. It's the people who got land through the Homestead Act. It's the people who benefited from the GI Bill. It's the people who made more on a dollar. It's the people who are allowed to buy houses and neighborhoods and had inherited money from their families who are often, you know, white and often male, right? Your woman, you didn't even have a checking account um, mm-hmm. until, you know, whatever, 30, 40 years ago. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's something that is often ignored in these stories, and more fundamentally, if we're talking about gender, but self-made men, it, it is, there's something that denies even a motherhood in it, you know? Yep. You come from nothing, right? So, th- that, to me, is there's something inherently anti-parent, anti-female about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Alyssa Quart about uh, her book, Bootstrapped. We'll also start to hear from you, listeners, on the phones and on social. Jimmy in Birmingham, Vicki in Bruce Township, Bernadette in Old Redford, Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. We'll start with you. If you want to join them, remember, 313-577-1019. Is the number here on the phones? That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and you can become part of the show that way. Hang on, we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. you get where you are? How did the success in your life unfold? Do you tell a story about self-reliance and hard work? Or do you tell a story about help, community, collaboration? 
We're talking today about this idea of bootstrapping versus relying on the communities around us to get ahead. And our guest is Alyssa Quart. She's the executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and author of a new book called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. We're talking with her about this hype over self-reliance, this American obsession with the idea of getting ahead all on your own and what it does to us, what it does to our notions of our own success and failure, but also, importantly, about other people's. When people don't succeed, we're often really quick to say, well, they just didn't work hard enough. They didn't work as hard as I did. On the other hand, people who are way ahead of us, people who have so much, really easily lured into the idea that they got where they got all on their own. Why is that? And is there a better way to be thinking about success in America to make it more accessible to more people? We want to hear from you on the phones and on social as well. 313-577-577. 1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today with uh, Vicki in Bruce Township. Vicki, welcome to the show. Hi. I'm a first-time caller and long-time listener. Oh, great. We love that. <laughs> I'm calling because this reminded me of a book that I read years ago when I started my career as a teacher called Organizing Genius which talked about this very thing, especially in the introduction, they laid out how we have this great myth in our minds of the Renaissance man or the Renaissance woman. And yet, when you look throughout history, so many of the greatest things that have ever really been accomplished have been accomplished by great groups. And throughout the book, it delineated some of these characteristics. And that was so influential for me as a teacher to see when I'm working with students, that is so critical to teach them how much we need each other and to rely on each other and, you know, to form lessons that give them those opportunities to collaborate and to see what are the characteristics of working well in groups to accomplish great things. Yeah. And and so, Vicki, I wonder what your experience was with uh, students trying to do that, given that we know that, uh, again, in, in our culture, there are so many people who are being given the opposite message uh, about success, uh, you know, from their parents and and, uh, other places in their community? Overwhelmingly, I've had really positive experiences. I did have one experience, though. This was um, six years ago, and I remember it well because I was pregnant with my last child and very obviously pregnant, and I was at a parent-teacher conference, and this one father was so upset that I had reprimanded his daughter for very obviously, and she later admitted it too, um, doing all of the work for this one group project that she was assigned to. And this man was so angry with me, I swear he was about to just come across the table and come after this very pregnant woman. Um, But overwhelmingly, uh, the students have taken to that. They see how I interact with them. They know that they're in a safe environment. They know and, and we talk about this before we start projects, that if there are conflicts, how are we going to handle those? You know, first, obviously, you're going to talk with each other about things, mm-hmm. but then, you know, I'm always there as the mediator, I suppose you would say. Um, but we also delineate roles and say, um, 
For example, you need a captain, but that doesn't mean that person is the boss. Instead, it's more that that person is making sure that everybody gets a chance to participate and have a voice. And if you think your captain is not actually doing that, you need to come to me because then they're not not doing their job. And then depending on the age group I'm working with, obviously some things might be very simple. If I'm working with elementary students, it might be as simple as now you have some students who are going to get supplies and things like that as well. Um, Or you always have somebody who's a secretary. Um, But then with older students, it's really a wonderful thing to see how um, they develop a sense of safety to really put different ideas out there. Mm. And kids that in other situations maybe don't look as invested start putting out ideas and you see, no, it's not that the student is not invested, but perhaps they just never felt that they had either an idea that was worth sharing or maybe that anyone would pay attention or something of that nature. And then they start putting their ideas out and really making whatever the project is something that they take ownership of and can really feel proud of. And it's, it's a really fantastic thing. Yeah, Vicki, it, it sounds really great, and, and I'm glad you called and, and shared that story. I mean, I think there are a lot of people listening who maybe wish their kids were in your school. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa, you. Alyssa, I want to get you to, to respond to, to Vicki, but I, I want to have you talk specifically about the role that schools play in this in creating this mythology in the first place, the role that education plays uh, in that, and 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 the way in which Vicky seems to have found a way to to push in, I guess, the opposite direction. Well, yeah. So, I mean, recently I I was at an event for this book, and someone came up to me and said he had gone to school in Ohio, and all of his teachers they just said, "You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps." That was just a common thing for them to say to their students for no particular reason to seem, but that was just like, it was almost like, uh, you know, you have to find a, you know, a hobby. <laughs> you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever. It was like a, it was like a casual phrase that you constantly, and he was, you know, it took him years to be, you know, free of this ideology. So I think it's great that you have, a, that you have a teacher here who, who already understands that group work is one of the one of the ways that kids excel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a way out of the trap of being, you know, gifted, having to be gifted and special. Which you know, I actually wrote a book about that called Hot House Kids, my second book. You know that that sometimes the um, tracking and the separation can put an undue pressure on kids as well, even the people who are the kids who are achieving like the kid that you're talking about, uh, the, the dad is probably pushing her a lot, you know, and there's all kinds of things happening psychologically with that as well. So um, I think it's great that she's working collectively. And that sort of feeds into my book in the sense that uh, the last third of it is really about, I call it Towards a New American Dream. It's about reclaiming a dream that's more about cooperatives and mutual aid and collective work. And I think that that's sort of, that can happen in schools. I mean, it have, can happen in workplaces, something called work co-ops. It can happen politically, where people sort of are part of their local government. Um, and we just need to sort of put more of an emphasis on it. And what I call attribution, where we, we attribute our successes to people like our teachers and our the students in our classes, rather than wholly to ourselves. You know, I think that's a, that's the psychological and uh, learning piece for a lot of people that to start attributing 
achievement to the people in their lives rather than their their own steam all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Vicky, really appreciate the call and uh, the wonderful story there. Uh, let's go next to Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. Aaron, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. I believe that the bootstraps myth exists to benefit capital and capitalism, particularly the American style of hypercapitalism. The corporation wants the worker to believe that they are the problem. Not management, not a lack of public transit, not a lack of housing. They are the problem. People become successful, in my opinion, through um, other people, the family, friends, teachers, and their own talents and work ethic. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, I, I really appreciate that uh, invocation of, of economics and an economic system into the into the conversation. I think that's an important part of what we're, we're talking about. Uh, Alyssa, talk about the, the, the mm-hmm. role that our form of capitalism in particular at this point uh, in the early 21st century um, uh, plays in, in keeping people believing in this idea that uh, everyone is, is kind of on their own and that everyone is uh, responsible for their own fate. Yeah, so, so putting the pressure back on individual workers is this very convenient uh, trick, really, because, you know, you're not giving them, uh, you know, protection, work protection. You're sometimes preventing them having unions, right, all the traditional protections. And yet you're asking them to, um, you know, continually be productive in a lot of workplaces, measuring now even algorithmically measuring a worker's production, you know, with <laughs> surveillance and, you know, expecting them to even, you know, uh, take care of their own health by giving them uh, sometimes not any health insurance or very sketchy health insurance. And something that I write about in the book, corporate mindfulness, like, installing these programs that are supposed to be making them well psychologically that are really about creating even more productivity for the companies and putting more pressure back on the worker. So, I mean, I think part of the work of individualism is to convince voters to vote for people who pretend to be self-made and aren't and to force people at the lower end of the gradient to take care of themselves entirely mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. giving them any, you know, resources besides the ones they earn themselves to do so. And that's part of what I'm sort of arguing in this book that, you know, we need more workplace support. I mean, you know, but we, we also need things like um, an awareness of respect for essential workers that continues after the pandemic and isn't just a flash in the pan and a reaction to a disaster. You know, why are they no longer called essential, you know? So that's 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 part of what I'm writing about as well. Yeah, uh, I want to read uh, a social uh, social media comment here. Another comment. Uh, Michael says another commonality is using being an alum of a certain college or university as proof of being self-made, as opposed to entitlement. It seems more like an entitlement, even though it feels like an achievement and gives a huge advantage. I think this is a really interesting point, especially right now, given that uh, college admissions at the most elite universities were were announced in the last uh, couple of days, in the last week. And there are lots of people uh, who are happy about uh, where they're going to be going to school. Lots of people 
still a little uh, anxious or, or, or disappointed. But this idea of individualism and earning and uh, achieving on your own infects the college admission process to begin with, of course, but it also uh, does play into the idea uh, after college of what should be available or what is available uh, to people. This idea that uh, you know, if I went to Harvard, then then I, I've got access to a world that other people who didn't go to Harvard uh, don't have, and that I somehow somehow earn that, even though, of course, admissions to these schools are are highly, highly uh, freighted with, with kind of advantage and bias. Yeah, and I mean, now every, everyone has tutors. Um, this is very different. I mean, I'm probably your age, you know, but people have tutors for their kids and mm-hmm. every subject, uh, every, you know, they're, they're at a fancy school, they've taken, you know, or even like this, a, a pretty good school, they've taken APs, um, and they've gotten tutored for the ACTs or the SATs. And yeah, and then what happens is now kids sort of, their parents to naturalize that advantage. They're like, you know, my kid got a whatever thirty-five or thirty-six on an ACT, and what's what's sort of being normalized is that um, all the all the money and accumulated advantage that kind of went into that kid getting that score. So yeah, we absolutely need to start thinking about that. There's a good book on that called uh, Poison Ivy that's mm-hmm. sort of about. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I I went to uh, one of these schools too, and it was I didn't come from that privileged background, and it has been you know immensely helpful for me. I'm gonna I think it's really important for us to be transparent about advantages, you know, because that's part of the thing. Like people once they get ahead, then they're sort of like, oh no, you know, I just did it myself. But no, I mean, having gone to uh, uh, a good fancy school really did create for me a social network and a kind of um, confidence, I guess, about that people should listen to me, right? And, um, you know, I also think, you know, we need to have more philanthropic giving to community colleges. I mean, I I put some of these numbers in my book, but it's it's an infinitesimal portion of of philanthropy that is directed at community colleges, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. public colleges. The majority goes to, yeah, Ivy League or, you know, other liberal arts colleges that were the alma mater of the donors. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with Alyssa Quart, author of Bootstraps, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Uh, We'll get to Jimmy in Birmingham and Bernadette in Old Redford. Also, Dennis in Dearborn, Fred in Farmington Hills. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Aretha Franklin. This is B.B. King. Hello, this is Jack White. This is Elvis Costello. And you're listening to WDET FM Detroit, your source for quality arts and information programming since 1949. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined. Our guest is Alyssa Quart. She's executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and author of a book titled Bootstrapped Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. We're talking about that American dream, this idea that infects so much of our society that 
each of us needs to just work harder, rely on ourselves to get ahead. Of course, many of us know that's a myth, that uh, those of us at the top of success in America have relied on other people to help and to assist and push them forward, and that those at the bottom of the economic scale aren't necessarily uh, lazy or uh, unambitious, uh, this idea that somehow they're at fault for the fate of their lives is a myth as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'd love to hear about your sense of this, your sense of this in your life and around you. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Listen, before we get back to our listeners, I want to talk about solutions. In the book, you provide several examples of ways that people are trying to form community-based solutions to the problems that they're facing. I want you to talk about a couple of your favorite examples and how those projects are going. Yeah, so one of my favorite examples is, you know, mutual aids. And, you know, during the pandemic, uh, they burst into life. There's something like 800 of them, um, or at least by one of the counts, but I'm sure there was many more. And they really helped people. Like I knew people who were getting, you know, medication or delivering food to their neighbors, um, so that was that was a real bright spot. But, you know, some of the other things, I mean, honestly, it's been pe- people um, voting, too. I mean, I, I'm really pleased to see people like Maxwell Frost or Representative Perez out in Seattle. Maxwell Frost is in Florida. People who don't come from privileged backgrounds who are willing to say that they don't publicly and mm-hmm. kind of refute the Horatio Alger story to have major politicians doing that. I think is a really important thing narratively and also politically, like who is in there representing us. It's going to be someone whose economic life looks more like most people. You know, if you have, you know, close to half people unable to pay three months of expenses in an emergency, they're not like the millionaires in the Senate and Congress. Right. So I think we need to really um, vote differently. But also in terms of other grassroots stuff, there's things like, and I think Detroit has some of these worker cooperatives which is uh, businesses where the workers own their labor. They own the company, and then they do the work for the company. And I, I talk to people at a bunch of those. They're on the rise. They're, uh, some of them are online. They write, you know, kind of uh, competitors to Lyft and Uber and so forth. Uh, yeah, and I also talk to people who were actually doing new kinds of therapy where they were uh, aware of things like social class. They were helping each other sometimes for free, kind of peer-to-peer counseling. So uh, there's a whole host of different kind of, it's not depressing, in other words, a whole host of other <laughs> solutions that are really lived in in the book that um, uh, I think are making a difference for people and getting them out of this mindset. Because some of it's about getting the mindset as well, getting mm-hmm. that gone. Mm-hmm. What do you say to people who would attack this idea of collaboration or collective thinking as socialism, or we don't hear this term as much anymore, communism. Uh, Certainly on the political right right now, it's a very popular cudgel to pick up to to come after people who talk about an alternative uh, alternative vision. Uh, how, How do you answer that? Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because that's another one of the, <laughs> the, the, you know, the sneering comments. Oh, this is just communism. <laughs> um, um, 
I mean, I think, you know, one of the ways we can talk about that is you know, organized religion, which, you know, supposedly um, a, a number of conservative voters, uh, you know, are, are part of organized religion at churches, they have a collective orientation, you know. Um, the, you know, the Amish and did barn raising, mm-hmm. you know. Um, what surprised me in some of my reporting were the people who said, oh, individualism isn't a problem. It's really community. We're in, like, kind of quite devout sometimes quite zealous religious communities. So I think, like, for them to, you know, some of this stuff is just really in line, actually, with their values if they were to look really into their hearts and not just, you know, have a kind of team team MAGA sensibility about all this. Because I think, um, yeah, and and then there's, there's other things, too. I mean, your workers will be more productive um, if you're giving them the sense of ownership of their own labor. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that alienated alienated labor doesn't serve uh, corporate class either, you know, because it just makes people really dissatisfied. I mean, we can see from the great resignation and, you know, whatever, the quiet quitting that that's the case. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's go to Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Hey, good to talk to you, Stephen. Hey. Um, I'm going to double down on um, the last in- institution that just came up, and that, for me, was the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up in that community, well, I use that term loosely, um, we... I was when when you said the words "pull yourself up by your bootstraps." The first thing I was so triggered I couldn't even figure out why. <laughs> and as I've been listening on hold, I realized that I first learned that phrase through the the church community in which I grew up. And getting back to what I was originally calling about, what I find fascinating since I've deconstructed my my faith is. The most lonely people, the people who were the most isolated growing up teaching me that, um, they were the most lonely. They had no community. They, Mm. you know, even in life as a grown-up now, I see the people in my life who espouse their own um, abilities and and tout their own talents to, to talk about how they got to where they are, yet they're the loneliest people. There's nobody in the trenches with them when life gets hard, and so... I think what I've understood about this nuance is that the the people in life who personally don't have, you know, people that are, you know, asking them hard questions Mm -hmm. and frankly, in the trenches with them, being vulnerable with them, uh, they're also not experiencing the fact that their success comes not just from themselves. So. Uh, Jimmy, it's such a wonderful observation. I'm really glad you called and and shared that with the listeners. Uh, Alyssa, uh, there is a lot being written and and talked about about American loneliness and the increasing isolation that people feel, not just because of the pandemic and the dramatic effects of that over the last three years, but, but well before that, this idea of peeling away from community and in so many cases, especially with men, adult men. We've had uh, discussions on this show before about about that. I wonder how that interacts with this idea of individualism and the myths of of individualism. Yeah, I mean, they call it deaths of despair sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays, you know, men in their... 50s and 60s or 70s, you know, people dying earlier than they should, um, 
you know, sometimes by their own hand, sometimes, you know, from just health, uh, health conditions that were exacerbated by loneliness and not taking care of themselves, right? Um, and so we really need to try to talk about that openly. I mean, I call this the thing that I'm seeking, you know, beyond just these things like mutual aid and, uh, you know, participatory budgeting, I call it the art of dependence, which is, and that's a part of what I love as callers, kind of cultivating um, a, a pride in our own dependence on others, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that being dependent on others is a grace, it's a skill, it's a craft. Uh, you call it the art of dependence, I call it dependence pride sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, I think some of this isolation and men who don't ask for help and um, who are perhaps professionally, you know, been outmoded, right? There's probably been changes in their professions that have made them less central to whatever uh, discipline they were in, you know, and I think we need to uh, start to say, like, asking for help isn't a problem and it's actually something quite beautiful, you know, and that, that, that's the, that's part of the change in the mindset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy, I uh, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Fred in Farmington Hills. Fred, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey. Uh, yeah, I think that the concept that we're all created equal is misunderstood. Um, I think we're equal in the eyes of our creator, but we're all created with different talents and weaknesses and strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, Unfortunately, some talents are compensated more than others, and that creates a vast inequity in our society. Um, If we're lucky, uh, we discover our strengths and talents early on, uh, and education plays a big part in that process. Mm -hmm. So, so Fred, I I wonder how you think that relates to this idea of of self-reliance, if, if, for instance, we are all equal, created equal, but endowed with very different skills or gifts, is it up to each of us on our own to make the best of that? Or do you believe that that we need to be complementing each other, right? Uh, taking uh, taking from each other what, what, what works to, to try to make uh, a better a better opportunity for everyone. Well, I think I think going back to the idea of education, um, where you're you get a, exposed to a broad variety of disciplines and and ideas, and uh, you're you're in with other people uh, of different backgrounds. That's that's the great part about public education is mm-hmm. is we are a melting pot, and we all uh, can. Get get exposed to different ways of thinking. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that develops uh, an ability to search out the the things that are uh, are your strengths. Sure, uh, Fred. I really appreciate the call and and the observations. Uh, I think they're they're a really important part of the way that we think about these things. Let's go next to Rich in Roseville. Rich, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, you know, some of this needs to be, you know, in any subject matter and, you know, this format, there's so many aspects of it, but putting things in a perspective, hopefully, I mean, without strong individuals, 
who are you know have the self reliance, where does that leave the collective anyhow? Hmm. If you got a bunch of weaklings, you know, and I don't mean to be derogatory, but you know, it's like the blind leading the blind. But if you got someone who's strong, and everybody needs help, you know, that's that's a given. You know, nobody's done anything. You know, and if they have, as far as I'm concerned, more power to them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, everybody has individual talents that can be used, you know, yeah. like I say, for, for the for the good of, you know, everybody. I mean, you can look any in any subject matter and certain things. You know, overall, if you want a strong nation, you know, you have all these individual elements that make it strong, mm-hmm. as opposed to having a weak citizenry who's reliant on the government. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately, I think that's the direction that we're headed. Rich, I, Let's I everybody be self-reliant yeah. on the government. Rich, I and, like and I, the, I, yeah. I, I like that you called and, and shared that. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. Um, and I do want to give Alyssa Kaur a chance to, to address that. The the word that stands out to me in in Rich's call is is weak. The idea uh-huh. that there is you know, a weakness associated with collective effort or or, uh-huh. or reliance on others, and 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 I think that is that is part of the myth that we're talking about here, Alyssa. It is part of the myth, and and you know I, I don't entirely disagree with the the callers, you know, insistence that we have people who are. Leaders. I mean, we need. We do need leaders. The problem is when we have leaders who are pretending, <laughs> pretending to have skills, a la Trump. Uh-huh. You know that, that they do not. I mean, that's you know one of the problems, right? Of this this kind of reckless individualism. It's not really about um, the strong leading the the vulnerable. It's about the entitled leading uh, leading people off a cliff a little bit, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but anyway. Um, what I, I really like the caller before because I, I mean one of the things that I, has been striking me as someone who runs a or, labor organization in mm-hmm. part is for journalists is that I don't think there's anything that's unskilled and I know that's a popular way of describing workers mm-hmm. but I think part of what we need to do is reassess sure we're not all equal but somebody who makes a pizza is not unskilled if you've ever tried to make a pizza you know, that's right. hard. I can't do it. Right. <laughs> I can't make a pizza. I mean, I can, but it's hard. You know, it takes a long time. Um, you know, uh, or someone who works in a department store and organizes clothes, if anyone's ever tried to organize a closet, they know that that's not like unskilled labor, and yet that's called unskilled. Sure. And so I think the, the, um, how we rank people and how we uh, de- kind of denigrate certain kinds of work and, uh, and praise others and allow people who think that they're strong uh, to have all these, you know, accoutrements that make lead us to believe they are, lead us. These are the problems I'm trying to, to, to point out and to bust, not the fact that, you know, there should there are talented people who can actually do things that other people can't. Sure, sure. Okay, uh, Alyssa Quart, Executive Director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. It was really great to have you here to talk about this new book, Bootstrapped. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Oh, yeah. Thank you again. It's okay. wonderful to be here. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to take a look at innovation as a way to fix problems and the struggles some say they are having trying to be innovative here in the city of Detroit. Also, remember, if you like this show and enjoy listening, Share it. Share it with your friends, with your neighbors, with your family. We're building a community here, and the more people who join, the better. 
This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.